I want to invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Feel free to use your table of contents or click on your phone or your tablet. We're in Matthew 5. And we've been asking this question the past several months. How can you and I flourish in life? How can we not just survive, uh, not just grind out an existence, but how can we actually thrive? How can we flourish? And we've been asking this question because this is the center of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus addressing flourishing, how a human being can flourish in life. And if you want to know what Jesus says, his perspective on flourishing, he has a few different components that he's wanting to speak into. First, if you're wanting to understand Jesus' perspective on flourishing, you need to know that he outlines a set of values that form the foundation for a life of flourishing. And he does this in these nine statements. We call them beatitudes. They're statements of blessing. And in fact, the Greek term, the better perspective or understanding or translation in the English is flourishing. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are the meek. If you want to flourish, you need to have a kingdom set of values. And then Jesus goes on and he's going to outline how we relate with other people. He gives a set of ethics on how to live, how to take these values and apply them to life. And in these ethics, what Jesus is doing is he's deconstructing. Over and over, he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus is deconstructing a way of relating to others and constructing a new ethic that leads to personal and social flourishing. And we come to that last ethic this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to read our passage and Many consider this ethic that we're going to touch on this morning to be the most distinctly Christian ethic that Jesus gives out here in the Sermon on the Mount. The other things we've looked at, anger and hostility, uh, lust and adultery, oaths, by and large, other religious traditions embrace those same ethics. Now, Jesus uniquely connects it to the heart, but by and large, those ethics are shared by across religious boundaries. But what we look at this morning is something that many consider to be distinctly Christian, a distinct kingdom ethic that Jesus gives. And not only is it distinctly Christian, but it may be the most challenging of all the ethics Jesus is going to teach on. So let me read our passage in Matthew 5, verses 38 and following. Jesus is teaching. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. In our text, Jesus is addressing and speaking to how we respond to hostility. And I think when we think about this, it's good to imagine a portrait of what a hero is all about. And if we're going to imagine a portrait of what a hero is all about, I think it's good to think about what, a, what evil looks like and really what does a bully look like. So I want to invite you to close your eyes and, and just imagine a bully in your life. Could have been someone from elementary school, could be a boss now, a fellow co-worker, but think of, imagine, a bully. You can open them. Uh, when I imagine a bully, I think of Nelson from The Simpsons. Anyone remember Nelson with that laugh, just mocking people when they make mistakes? And it's interesting how we think of responding to the Nelsons in our life. There's a few different responses uh, one response to the bully is to join forces. <laughs> you can join forces with the bully. You know, if they're the strong one able to take other people's lunch money, there might be some personal benefits for you. If you partner up with the bully and take lunch money, sit at their table, kind of have a posture toward others that says, I get my way, I'm stronger than you, and I'll take what I want. But, you know, we're in church, you know, and even in society today, we would say that's not the right response. We shouldn't partner with the bully. So another response is a zero-tolerance response for the bullies. The people in authority need to get rid of the bullies. And, uh, and this is prevalent in society today, this perspective of zero-tolerance in our schools toward bullies. And, and comedian Dave Chappelle had an interesting take on this. He described the experience of his daughter... Uh, being given, him and his daughter being given a tour of a school, and the principal went on and on and on about their zero tolerance toward bullies. And Dave Chappelle, I think, uh, interestingly, he, he called out, he's like, well, then how are they, how's my child going to learn? Because you learn more from a bully than you do a teacher. <laughs> and, uh, and he's pointing out just, and, and then he has this moment where he points out that, you know, life often is unfair. And if we send our children into the world and they're not able to manage the people who would oppose them, then we're actually doing them a disjustice. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't punish bullies and, and we should all embrace it, but there is something to that. If we think that the opposition in our world can just be taken care of by the principals and parents in our life, then we can oftentimes not respond well. Others of us, when it comes to a bully... Uh, we think about that conversation we might have had with, with our father or a person in our life where they described how to fight the bully. I remember this conversation with my dad. When, you know, he, we never talked about fighting. We didn't watch boxing together. But the time where there was a bully in our school and he sat me down and he described to me how to fight someone. You know, he's like, Jay, all right, take your hands like this. And, you know, I'm like a little kid. He's like, all right, now you punch like this. And he instructed me how to confront a bully. And that needs to happen sometimes in life. There's bullies that need to be confronted. But that leads to maybe a more heart-wrenching question, and it's this. How do we know 
if we are someone confronting the bully or the bully ourselves. We can imagine in our world, everyone, the, the bullies look like Nelson and we are the righteous person. But what if, unbeknownst to us, we are the Nelson figure in life? And so we have this portrait of a bully, but also we have a portrait of a hero. And if you were to imagine, what does a hero look like? What is a hero today? Many of us, we might think of a, of a superhero film. You might imagine Iron Man or Captain America, people who rise up and fight the bullies. But Jesus is going to outline, he's going to give us a different portrait, a different vision, a different view of what a hero looks like, of what greatness is about. In his eulogy of Martin Luther King Jr., Benjamin Mays describes the, the work of Martin Luther King. He describes it in vivid detail upon giving this eulogy on April 4th, 1968. And he says this about Martin Luther King. He says, this man was loved by some and hated by others. If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere and in seeking limelight for his own glory, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed 30 times, occasionally deeply hurt because his friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world, preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. He believed with all his heart, mind, and soul that the way to peace and brotherhood is through nonviolence, love, and suffering. Here is a portrait of what Jesus considers greatness. It is a person who, in response to hostility and the bullies of life, they just don't conquer them, but they actually redeem them. And so this morning, let's consider, what does it look like for you and me? As we think about flourishing, what does it look like for us to respond to hostility? And here is why this conversation is so, so important today. We live in a world that many consider to be unraveling socially around this particular issue, how we relate with those we disagree with. Uh, Irvin Staub was a professor and social psychologist at UMass, and he's published a number of different works, but he's most noted for his, his work titled The Roots of Evil. It was published around 1990, and and he was interviewed and, uh, recently for his take on today with the social fragmentation and division and violence happening, what his takeaways were as it relates to understanding evil. And he said in all his, uh, the majority of his adult life went into research and understanding. He said there's three takeaways for understanding evil today. Here's what he said. 
my first takeaway is that seeing members of another group or a single person as separate and different from us as them rather than us and seeing them in a negative light or using or using uh, I'm sorry or using my term devaluing them opens the door to harming others there are varied forms of devaluation and some are more dangerous than others seeing the other as immoral or as less than human. He says, my first takeaway is evil begins by devaluing another person. His second crucial takeaway is this, is that hostility and violence evolves progressively. It evolves progressively. Individuals and whole groups change when they harm others. If there are no restraining forces to stop them, they will justify the harm they have done. They devalue their victims more and usually also create a vision of a better life for themselves, which is destructive as they claim at the targeting group stands in the way of fulfilling this vision. What he's saying is people view others as enemies standing against their concept of flourishing. And so therefore they are justified to bring harm. And then lastly, he said, my third takeaway is that that passivity of witnesses or bystanders, people who are neither victims nor perpetrators, allow this evolution to progress. He said it begins with people looking at others as less than human, and that moves to them inflicting violence on them, and then that is legitimized by a public that merely watches. This is how evil progresses. And we feel this progression of evil today. The World Economic Forum did a three-year study understanding the forces that drive division. And and here's what they found. And I share this with you because I want you to know when we're weighing in and talking about hostility, these just aren't things that I as a, a preacher can come up with. But this is research that shows where we are today. Here's what they found. The picture emerging from these studies shows that more than just shifts in public opinion about specific issues, there is a deepening distrust in each other, not just in institutions, with growing tribalism and intolerance of those with different beliefs and backgrounds. So what are these forces that lead to this division? And here's what they say. There is a perfect storm of conditions for social fragmentation, It is the convergence of economic forces, which they label as inequality, job insecurity, and particular regions that feel left behind. There is a convergence of economic forces and changes in culture, technology, and the media landscape. And against the backdrop of these two forces is a weaker social connectedness and erosion of local communal life. These forces often play into existing fault lines in society, widening racial, religious, and ideological divisions. And here is one of the points they close with. The most troubling conversations we have had in the past year were with experts in conflict prevention who look at the deepening polarization in the United States and see patterns that in other societies have led to widespread civil violence. 
The research shows that we're becoming more tribal. And this tribalism, if history is to be understood and other trends in other countries are understood, can and most likely will lead to civil violence. And I have more bad news. <laughs> Today is November 17th, and a year, and next November, November 2020, what's going to happen? We're going to have an election. <laughs> and election season has a tendency to bring out the worst in these areas. I was looking up different takes and quotes about the election season, and, and just here's a sampling. One person said this about the upcoming election. A noted authority figure said, Democrats care about what's fair and true. Republicans only care about winning, no matter how much they have to lie and cheat. I think that really just summarizes how people on either side of the issues view this election season. The rhetoric is hot. Many are saying the future, of, the future of our country is at stake. And this leads to polarization. One commentator said, it's going to be a bloodbath. So how do we, as God's people, seeking to be shaped by the ethic that Jesus is giving us here in the, kingdom of the, in the Sermon on the Mount, an ethic that leads to flourishing personally and socially, how do we respond in this age of hostility. How can we, to the bullies of our life, live out the ethic exp uh, embraced by Martin Luther King Jr. and others who have gone before us? How can we be a redemptive presence and break the cycle of hostility and violence? A few ways we learn from our text. Uh, first, thinking how do we break the cycle of hostility? We need to know that we will all receive opposition. We will, we will be confronted by people who would wish us harm. Again, thinking of the portrait of the enemy, the bully figure that you imagined in your mind. You know, growing up, uh, we had a vision, a portrait of what an enemy looked like. Then it might have been like a Darth Vader or the Joker or um, a witch, you know, typically villains, they, they wore dark clothing, they might have dabbled in sorcery, and they tried to tempt people with apples that were poisoned. But, you know, life in opposition, it's, it's a bit more personal. Maybe, maybe you had a Darth Vader in your school growing up. We, yeah, I never had that. But there was opposition still. So what does opposition look like? You know, one form of opposition is is being dishonored. In our text, Jesus quotes from Exodus 21 and other passages which speak to what is called the lex talionis, which is how to avenge someone. And, and here's one commentator's note. When Jesus says an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, here's one commentator's note. The lex talionis regulations primarily avenged the person's honor. It was about honor. Vindicating the person by punishing the assailant. It wasn't about a deterrent or compensating the one defended. It was about avenging honor. In fact, when Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. To be slapped on the right cheek would require a backhand across the face with the right hand. And to backhand someone across the face, this was... 
to dishonor them. And in an honor-shame culture, nothing could be worse. To dishonor someone is to say, you're not worthy of respect. You're unhuman. It dehumanizes people. Have you ever been dishonored in life? That someone's offense on you, it's not just about a physical pain, being punched, but the physical is a knock, an attack on you and your humanity. Some of us, we will inevitably, all of us, experience opposition by being dishonored. Also, we can experience opposition when we are used, when people use us. All three of the next following examples have to do with someone obtaining something of yours through false pretense, without compensation. It says, let him have your cloak. Most likely in their day and age, this is someone being falsely accused in a court of law. And so Jesus is saying, give them your cloak. It's the idea of being falsely accused. Jesus says, go the extra mile. And Roman soldiers could force someone to walk with them to take something that they want to see transported. And so this is the concept of being forced to comply with others. It says, give to give to beggars. The, the idea here is that there are times when people will use you. There are times where you will be falsely accused, where you will be forced to contribute. Well, people will just want something of yours, not you yourself. We will experience opposition when others use us. You may be used by people for the new video game system that you have. You may be used by people when you come across new financial resources and now all of a sudden there's friends and people in your life that want to hang out. You may be used by people when you hear from a friend who you haven't talked to in years, but now they're raising money for a particular cause. And so all of a sudden, they're, you know, the friendship's rekindled and they want to meet, getting maybe a little close to home. You may be used by people when you have a boyfriend who says that you don't love them unless you relate with them in a certain physical manner. This feeling of being used when someone looks at you and me as merely a means of their gratification as a form of opposition. Maybe you can relate with the psalmist in Psalm 109. says, Be not silent, O God, for wicked and deceitful mouths open against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. There's times when we feel and experience opposition. Another form is being unjustly persecuted. Jesus puts it this way in verse 43. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Sometimes in life there are enemies, there are people that wish us harm. People who are actingly, acting vengeantly upon us. And if I could summarize, opposition, it takes many forms. Sometimes opposition is dishonoring. Sometimes opposition is using. Sometimes opposition is being an enemy seeking to harm you. And what Jesus is saying is that it's going to come. It's going to 
come. No, you will receive opposition. But when you receive opposition, know you receive something else too. When opposition comes, you must receive the unmerited love from God the Father. That we just, we just aren't persecuted, but we also are incredibly loved. Jesus twice references in our passage, he says, your Father in heaven. And, and in the Sermon on the Mount, 15 times Jesus spoke about God the Father. 14 of those 15, he said, your Father, your Father in heaven. Jesus personalizes God as Father. One theologian, J.I. Packer, said this. He said, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the, one, of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. God as Father. Now, what, do, what, what makes a father a father? What makes a dad a dad? A father is an originator. A father brings life. You can have a father of faith. You can have a biological father. You can have God as creator, father. A father protects and provides for his child. And also a father cares. A father, a good and loving father, cares. It invites a child up into their lap, not only to protect, but to say you are loved here. Now, of course, we hear this, and for many the idea of God as Father doesn't connect because when we have a portrait of a Father in our mind, it's of someone who's caused more harm than help. When we imagine a Father, we imagine someone who we would love to be a caring presence in our life but hasn't been. Father wounds dominate so much in society today. And talk about hostility in an enemy when it feels like your own dad is not for you. And father wounds are what perpetuate and lead to a cycle of hostility and violence today. In the recent film, Joker, a very dark but sobering take on violence today. You see a character experience the injustice of the world, but down to the core is a figure grappling with the absence of a father figure in his life. And, this, and these wounds can, can well up in us, and that's what lead us to wound others. And so if we're going to break the cycle, if we're going to break the cycle of wounds and violence and hatred and anger, we need, we need to experience another love. Uh, speaking of villains, uh, it was recently Halloween, and we still have Halloween candy in our home. And it's a sad and scary thing. Now, I'm really good. I'm, I'm really good at helping our two boys relate well with their candy. I'm an adult, okay? I'm an adult. You're like, thank you, Jay. All right. I'm an adult, and I'm good at helping them only eat one piece of candy, and why do I do this? Because I know what candy does. 
Candy turns them into little demons for like 30 minutes, and then they end up crashing. It doesn't go well for them. It doesn't go well for anybody. Candy, too, it, it hurts their teeth, their health. Candy, you know, a little bit of candy is okay, but if you have too much of it, it will rot your life. I'm really good with my kids about this. Myself, you know, I'll just put it to you like this way. Yesterday I was home, and my boys, Jack and Bennett, walked up to me, seeing there were like six torn apart wrappers of their Halloween candy right there on the table. Jack said, Daddy, I thought you said candy is bad for us. Bennett, the, the nice child, you know, the, the positive one, he's like, well, Daddy, he wants to be healthy. But, Daddy, why are you eating the, all the candy? You know, they can't make sense of this because it's easier, it's easier to call out the wrong habits in others than to practice it ourselves. Why do I see that? Why do I say that? Because we all know the effects of eating too much candy. We see, we see uh, the symptoms when a kid turns into an evil demon or when we gain weight and have cavities in our teeth. We see the symptoms. If you go to the cause, it's too much sugar. When we see the symptoms of anger and hostility, it speaks to a wound that is inside. We must experience a new love. And this is why Jesus points us to the love of the Father, the perfect love of the Father. And what links has God's love driven Him to reconcile and redeem and love you? How has that been expressed? He has given you life. In the eyes of God, you are not a mistake. You were created with purpose. And you are loved by God. That it's Romans 5, 6 says this. Paul, unpacking this nature of God's love, he says this. For why, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, he, the point is here. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Paul says you were, we, we were defined as being ungodly, sinners, enemies. But God's love. God's love to redeem the enemy. Bonhoeffer, who lived in an age of evil, says this, Only those who there in the cross of Jesus find faith in the victory over evil can obey this command to love their enemy. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The judgment fell on Jesus. Jesus was backhanded. He was dishonored. Jesus had his outer garments torn to shreds. Jesus walked the bloody road carrying a sinner's cross so that you and I, his enemies, could be brought into fellowship with God. We receive opposition, but we receive something else, something greater, something more powerful. We receive the unmerited love and mercy of the Father. And we break the cycle of violence and hostility by living this ethic out. 
by being a child who imitates the love of their Father, by extending unmerited love to everyone. Paul, again, thinking of this portrait of love and greatness, says this, Therefore, be imitators, imitators of God as dearly loved children, and live in love just as Christ loved also loved us and gave himself up for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Paul's saying, imitate your heavenly Father. And when you imitate your heavenly Father, you will love, sacrificially love and care for others, even your enemies. And so what does this look like as we, as we get real practical? How to imitate God's love, this portrait of love and greatness, not conquering the enemies, but loving the enemies and redeeming them. How we can do this, one, feel, don't feel entitled to deserving the love and honor of others. Feel unentitled rather than deserving. Jesus wasn't overly conscious about being honored by everyone. Jesus was not insecure. When people spoke ill of him or confronted him, he wasn't shocked. Oh, Jesus, what? How? You would say. He, he didn't approach relationships entitled or deserving of the love and honor from others. And if Jesus, the God in the flesh, can position himself in relationships to not feeling entitled, you and I, so often I am easily offended. And not just when someone does something ill against me, they could just not notice me in a way I would want them to. Do you feel entitled to honor from everyone? If so, Life will sober you up. One of the ways that we can care for people is by not feeling entitled or deserving of all their attention and honor. But also, one of the ways we imitate God's love is by seeing people firstly as human beings and not as enemies. Seeing people as children of God. Jesus says God causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good. God looks at people and He sees people. He sees people created in His image. What are some of the ways you're tempted to dehumanize other people? How do you look at people who disagree with you politically? How do you look at people of other religious traditions? How do you look at people who aren't part of your tribe? We need to see people as fellow human beings Worthy of God's love, created in God's image. And lastly, seek redemption, not revenge. Seek redemption, not revenge. We opened with this portrait by Benjamin Mays about Martin Luther King and that he was willing to endure suffering in order to love others. And he may have had in mind this sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. preached on our passage. And I want to close with his take. Martin Luther King, speaking on our passage, he says this, Now there is a final reason 
I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform them. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving people. You just keep loving people and keep loving them even though they're mistreating you. Here's the person who is a neighbor. And this person is doing something wrong to you. I'm sorry, let me... Wrong to you and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them. And they can't stand it too long. All they react... Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they're mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings. And sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There's nothing, there's something about love that builds up and is creative. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. Love your enemies. Friends, when confronted with the bullies of this world, let's espouse the Jesus ethic of love. And it is so, so, so important because our neighborhoods, our cities, our communities are unraveling and God has placed us here. Benjamin Mays, speaking to King about King's life at his eulogy, he says, Many speculate that King lived at the wrong time, that he was too progressive, a future period. He said, no, King lived this out in the time God had for him. You and I are called to live this ethic out in the time God has for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who loves not just your friends, but first your enemies. And God, thank you that that love transforms us from an enemy to your child. Father, grant us, your children, the courage to love others, to love sacrificially, to not demand their honor And to love redemptively. May we not perpetuate the polarization of our world. But may we treat those who we disagree with. Especially those who want to harm us. With honor and care and protection. May we pray for them. As you instruct. And Lord this. This is. This, you have placed us in a world that is growing in anger and hostility. May we. May we be your agents of care and redemption now. May we transform our homes, our neighborhoods, our cities, and society 
by living out your kingdom ethic. May we flourish and help others flourish too. Amen.